Chapter 4 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer and Chief for the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On our arrival at the upper camp, related in the preceding chapter, we found the men, 26 in number, reduced to short rations, in weakly condition, and in a discouraged state of mind. They had been expecting the arrival of a large company with abundant supplies, and when we rejoined them without any provisions, they were greatly disappointed. General Ashley exerted himself to infuse fresh courage into their disconsolate breasts. Well knowing himself, however, that unless we could find game, the chances were hard against us. We remained in camp three or four days until we were well refreshed, and then deliberated upon our next proceeding. Knowing there must be game farther up the river, we moved forward. Our allowance was half a pint of flour a day per man, which we made into a kind of gruel. If we happened to kill a duck or a goose, it was shared as fairly as possible. I recalled to mind the incidents of our Pawnee expedition. The third evening, we made a halt for a few days. We had seen no game worth the charge of powder during our whole march and our rations were confined to the half-pint of flour per day. We numbered thirty-four men, all told, and a dollar encampment, I suppose, never was witnessed. No jokes, no fireside stories, no fun. Each man rose in the morning, with the gloom of the preceding night filling his mind. We built our fires and partook of our scanty repast without saying a word. At last, our general gave orders for the best hunters to sally out and try their fortune. I seized my rifle and issued from the camp alone, feeling so reduced in strength that my mind involuntarily reverted to the extremity I had been reduced to with Harris. About three hundred yards from camp, I saw two teal ducks. I leveled my rifle and handsomely decapitated one. This was a temptation to my constancy, an appetite in consciousness I had long strife as to the disposal of the booty. I reflected that it would be but an inconsiderable trifle in my mess of four hungry men while to roast and eat him myself would give me strength to hunt for more. A strong, inward feeling remonstrated against such an invasion of the rights of my starving messmates. But if, by fortifying myself, I gained ability to procure something more substantial than a teal duck, my dereliction would be sufficiently atoned, and my overruling appetite at the same time gratified. Had I admitted my messmates to the argument, 
they might possibly have carried it adversely. But I received the conclusion as valid. So, roasting him without ceremony in the bushes, I devoured the duck alone and felt greatly invigorated with the meal. Passing up the stream, I pushed forward to fulfill my obligation. At the distance of about a mile from the camp, I came across a narrow deer trail through some rushes, and directly across the trail, with only the center of his body visible, his two extremities being hidden by the rushes, not more than fifty yards distant, I saw a fine large buck standing. I did not wait for a nearer shot. I fired and broke his back. I dispatched him by drawing my knife across his throat, and having partially dressed him, hung him on a tree close by. Proceeding onward, I met a large white wolf, attracted probably by the scent of the deer. I shot him, and depriving him of his meal, devoted him for a repast to the camp. Before I returned, I succeeded in killing three good-sized elk, which, added to the former, afforded a pretty good display of meat. I then returned near enough to the camp to signal to them to come to my assistance. They had heard the reports of my rifle, and knowing that I would not waste ammunition, had been expecting to see me return with game. All who were able turned out to my summons, and when they saw the booty awaiting them, their faces were irradiated with joy. Each man shouldered his load, but there was not one capable of carrying the weight of forty pounds. The game being all brought into camp, the fame of Jim Beckworth was celebrated by all tongues. Amid all this gratulation, I could not separate my thoughts from the duck which had supplied my clandestine meal in the bushes. I suffered them to appease their hunger with the proceeds of my toil before I ventured to tell my comrades of the offense I had been guilty of. All justified my conduct, declaring my conclusions obvious. As it turned out, my proceeding was right enough, but if I had failed to meet with any game, I had been guilty of an offense which would, ever after, have haunted me. At this present time, I never kill a duck on my ranch, and there are thousands of teal duck there, but I think of my feast in the bushes while my companions were famishing in the camp. Since that time, I have never refused to share my last shilling, my last biscuit, or my only blanket with a friend, and I think the recollection of that temptation in the wilderness will ever serve as a lesson to more constancy in the future. The day following, we started forward up the river, and after progressing some four or five miles, came in sight of plenty of deer sign. The general ordered a halt and directed all hunters out as before. We sallied out in different directions, our general, who was a good hunter, forming one of the number. At a short distance from the camp, I discovered a large buck passing slowly between myself and the camp, at about pistol-shot distance. 
as I happened to be standing against a tree. He had not seen me. I fired. The ball passed through his body and whizzed past the camp. Leaving him, I encountered a second deer within three quarters of a mile. I shot him and hung him on a limb. Encouraged with my success, I climbed a tree to get a fair view of the ground. Looking around from my elevated position, I perceived some large, dark-colored animal grazing on the side of a hill some mile and a half distant. I was determined to have a shot at him, whatever he might be. I knew meat was in demand, and that fellow, well stored, was worth more than a thousand teal ducks. I therefore approached, with the greatest precaution, to within fair rifle shot distance, scrutinizing him very closely, and still unable to make out what he was. I could see no horns, and if he was a bear, I thought him an enormous one. I took sight at him over my faithful rifle, which had never failed me, and then set it down to contemplate the huge animal still farther. Finally, I resolved to let fly. Taking good aim, I pulled trigger, the rifle cracked, and I then made rapid retreat toward the camp. After running about 200 yards and hearing nothing in movement behind me, I ventured to look round, and to my great joy, I saw the animal had fallen. Continuing my course on to the camp, I encountered the general, who, perceiving blood on my hands, addressed me. Have you shot anything, Jim? I replied, Yes, sir. What have you shot? Two deer and something else, I answered. And what is the something else? he inquired. I, I do not know, sir. What did he look like? the general interrogated. Had he horns? I saw no horns, sir. What color was the animal? You can see him, General, I replied, by climbing yonder tree. The general ascended the tree accordingly, and looking through his spyglass, which he always carried, he exclaimed, A buffalo, by heavens! And coming nimbly down the tree, he gave orders for us to take a couple of horses and go and dress the buffalo and bring him into camp. I suggested that two horses could not carry the load. Six were therefore dispatched, and they all came back well packed with his remains. There was great rejoicing throughout the camp at such bountiful provision, and all fears of starvation were removed, at least for the present. The two deer were also brought in, besides a fine one killed by the general, and ducks, geese, and such like were freely added by the other hunters, who had taken a wider circuit. It appears strange that, although I had traveled hundreds of miles in the buffalo country, this one was the first I had ever seen. The conviction weighing upon my mind that it was a huge bear I was approaching had so excited me that, although within fair gunshot, I actually could not see his horns. The general and my companions had many a hearty laugh at my expense, he often expressing wonder that my keen eye could not, 
when close to the animal, perceived the horns, while he could see them plainly near two miles distant. A severe storm setting in about this time. Had it not been for our excellent store of provisions, we should most probably have perished of starvation. There was no game to be procured, and our horses were beginning to die for want of nourishment. We remained in this camp until our provisions were all expended, and our only resource was the flesh of the horses which died of starvation and exposure to the storm. It was not such nutritious food as our fat buffalo and venison, but in our present circumstances it relished tolerably well. Were General Ashley now living, he would recollect the hardships and delights we experienced in this expedition. When the storm was expended, we moved up the river, hoping to fall in with game. We, unfortunately, found but little on our course. When we had advanced some twenty miles, we halted. Our position looked threatening. It was midwinter, and everything around us bore a gloomy aspect. We were without provisions, and we saw no means of obtaining any. At this crisis, six or seven Indians of the Pawnee Loop Band came into our camp. Knowing them to be friendly, we were overjoyed to see them. They informed our interpreter that their village was only four miles distant, which at once accounted for the absence of game. They invited us to their lodges, where they could supply us with everything that we needed. But on our representing to them our scarcity of horses and the quantity of peltry we had no means of packing, they immediately started off to their village, our interpreter accompanying them, in quest of horses, and speedily returned with a sufficient number. Packing our effects, we accompanied them to their village. Two acts, of whom I have previously made mention, and a Spaniard named Antone Behele, chief of the band, forming part of our escort. Arrived at their village, which we found well provided with everything we needed, the Indians gave us a hospitable reception and spread a feast which, as they had promised, made all our hearts glad. Our horses, too, were well cared for and soon assumed a more rotund appearance. We purchased for our future use beans, pumpkins, corn, cured meat, besides some beaver skins, giving them in exchange a variety of manufactured goods used in the Indian trade, of which we had a great plenty. We replaced our lost horses by purchasing others in their stead, and now, everything being ready for departure, our general intimated to Tuax his wish to get on. Tuax objected. My men are about to surround the buffalo, he said. If you go now, you will frighten them. You must stay four days more. Then you may go. His word was law, so we stayed accordingly. Within the four days appointed, they made the surround and killed 1,400 buffaloes. The tongues were counted by General Ashley himself, and thus 
I can guarantee the truth of the assertion. To the reader unacquainted with the Indian mode of taking these animals, a concise description may not be uninteresting. There were probably engaged in this hunt from one to two thousand Indians, some mounted and some on foot. They encompass a large space where the buffaloes are contained, and closing in around them on all points form a complete circle. Their circle at first enclosed may measure perhaps six miles in diameter, with an irregular circumference determined by the movements of the herd. When the surround is formed, the hunters radiate from the main body to the right and left until the ring is entire. The chief then gives the orders to charge, which is communicated along the ring with the speed of lightning. Every man then rushes to the center, and the work of destruction is begun. The unhappy victims, finding themselves hemmed in on every side, run this way and that in their mad efforts to escape. Finding all chance of escape impossible, and seeing their slaughtered fellows drop dead at their feet, they bellow with affright, and in the confusion that whelms them, lose all power of resistance. The slaughter generally lasts two or three hours, and seldom many get clear of the weapons of their assailants. The field over the surround presents the appearance of one vast slaughterhouse. He who has been most successful in the work of devastation is celebrated as a hero and receives the highest honors from the fair sex, while he who has been so unfortunate as not to kill a buffalo is jeered and ridiculed by the whole band. Flaying, dressing, and preserving the meat next engages their attention and affords them full employment for several weeks. The surround accomplished, we received permission from Tuacs to take up our line of march. Accordingly, we started along the river and had only proceeded five miles from the village when we found that the Platte forked. Taking the South Fork, we journeyed on some six miles when we encamped. So we continued every day, making slow progress, some days not advancing more than four or five miles until we had left the Pawnee villages 300 miles in our rear. We found plenty of buffalo along our route until we approached the Rocky Mountains. When the buffalo, as well as all other game, became scarce, and we had to resort to the beans and corn supplied us by the Pawnees. End of chapter 4